Hello. Hi. Welcome to Hider Practice. We have Grog Vartanian, co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyper Allergic and artist. He didn't tell me to say artist, but I love his watercolors that he's been working on. And I just, I gotta, I gotta throw that out there because I do. So he has been so kind and so generous with his time to join us to talk about or continue our conversation about motivations. Why do we do this? But do you want to just tell, you know, for the like two people who might be listening who don't know who you are, uh, would you enlighten them, please? Just a little. Well, first of all, I'm so glad to be here because I've been enjoying your show. And so I hope you guys continue to do this because we need fresh, interesting voices talking about this stuff. So thank you. Thank you. And you guys aren't always interviewing the like, you know, the the predictable people, which I really love because it just expands my world, too. So thank you for doing that. Yay. So, you know, well here i'm i'm talking to you guys from our uh you know from our office here in williamsburg brooklyn i'm the editor-in-chief co-founder of hyperallergic been doing this now for over a decade i can't even believe it myself and uh you know it's like like most people i have so many hats do so many things like you mentioned artist i write other things i you know i i do a lot of volunteer work i do some activism so you know i'm a i try to i try to be a an all-round uh individual doing so many things and but you know the art art is my passion it's my love and that's why i'm here talking to you guys yeah. I have to start off by saying I read hyperallergic every morning. It's like one Aww. of those morning reads that yes. the, the newsletter I've noticed in the last couple of days, the time has changed because usually mm-hmm. when I wake up in the morning, I get it first thing. Mm-hmm. And now I just like, Oh, I'm getting it in like midday, which is fine. Oh, that's interesting. I'll look into but, that. Why that is. But then, um, then I go through the Twitter feed, and I'm just like, interesting, because it's such a different perspective than, say, like, art news or Artnet. It's just very, it's very interesting. There's there are a couple of writers whom I find myself reading consistently about their thought pieces, and I'm like, interesting. That's awesome. So glad to say that. Thank you, Erica. I will be sending you a check shortly. So thank you for the plug. Hyder Practice podcast now sponsored by Hyperallergic. Um, Influencers. Um, So how, how did it come to be? I mean, I remember... We were back in the day, in the early days We were days Tumblr blogging. buds. We were, we were Tumblr, Tumblr buds. buds. Um, but what, because, you know, I had my Tumblr, but you took it to the next level. Like, what happened with that? And then you kept going. It's just, it's amazing. Well, uh, well, first of all, I hope everyone knows your Tumblr. You know, because it's like, I have been following your Tumblr for so long. I don't even know a time on Tumblr before your blog. So that's that's one thing I just want to sort of say, and that's where oh, we're basking in the, right? in the former glory days, guys. <laughs> if y'all don't know, I don't know. I Tumblr's going to make a comeback. I could feel it. I could feel it. I think. I hope. Um, so you know, it, it. I think a lot of things in the creative field it came from my own dissatisfaction, and I think I was working a job that I just knew 
my time was coming to an end. I'd been working and doing communications, nonprofit communications. Loved it at the time, but I just knew it was going to have to end. And so Hyperallergic came from like me and my husband, Beacon, who's the publisher, just sitting down and being like, okay, what's our next move? Can we do something together? He's a marketer. I'm a writer and editor. And we were like, let's try a publication and this might lead to other jobs. That was really the thinking initially. It was the idea that he would have like a little bit of a case study showpiece that he could get other clients. And then same with me where I was just sort of like, okay, if worst comes to worst, this leads to other gigs, other, you know, writing gigs, editing gigs. I'm totally down. But, you know, within the first month or two, we realized we're getting traction. And we actually loved it. We loved what we were doing. You know, it came from our own desire to have accessible conversations about art for people who love art without being, you know, bogged down with the jargon and other stuff, you know, which is, I think, really, really important. So that's been, that was kind of like the initial motivation and it sort of took off. So within, though, when I say took off, I I love, in retrospect, it felt like it took off more. You know, it's like, for us, it was like three, four year plan. This is what we'll do. This is how we'll get there. And it came really, it was like double, if not that, uh, if not more. Um, Nothing ever takes three or four years when you think it's going to. It's just (laughs) not going to happen. So we started selling ads and uh, uh, originally we decided we didn't want a nonprofit. That was a conscious choice. I'd been working in nonprofits and I saw the negatives of nonprofits. Um, And I just knew being political and engaged, nonprofits weren't a great model for what we did because, you know, it's, uh, we thought in terms of, uh, you know, criticizing people, calling them out, we couldn't rely on one or two funders to fund what we were doing. We needed a more diverse approach. So, you know, uh, we just started thinking up what we're going to do and it sort of took off. And then uh, a few years in, we, I quit my day job like three and a half years in because we needed the health care because this is the United States. And my husband and I were both on our health, my health care at the time. And it was like we couldn't do it. So he actually quit his consulting gigs uh, first at the three-year mark. And then we kept, I kept on for another half year. And then finally, you know, decided this was it. And, you know, we just kept growing it and it was like to create jobs for people who were interested in this to like have a forum to be able to talk about stuff we actually cared about um you know it came from a lot of things it came from the fact that i felt like the art world couldn't handle a lot a lot of these issues that were coming up in a in a in a way that i thought was really important and by which i mean like every time there was a controversy i felt like the art world was so slow to react to things or did it in a very like kind of top-down approach as opposed to like engaging with topics in a current way in a daily kind of forum. And that's kind of what we created Hyperallergic to do. So, you know, we're, we try to wrestle with all these issues as much as we can, um, you know, in a full frontal kind of way. So would you say that you do it more in like a democratized accessible tone that sort of because oh, 10 absolutely. years ago 2010 what was happening in the world in 2010 well there was definitely the, the no COVID-19 recession yep Obama was two years into his first term right exactly um Tumblr was still early I think yes, I, right. got, I got uh turned down for a job because blogging was still a bad word that's right and everyone uh, really poo-pooed it yeah. and you'll you guys will get a kick out of this when we first started it was like Probably the first six years, 
almost all our clients, it was their first online ad buy ever. And we still get that occasionally. And we're talking about, this is like the 2010s, right? Yeah. Like, you, I mean, literally people would be like, uh, you know, from a college saying, oh, we've never bought an online ad before. How do we do that? So this is like, this is the environment we're talking about, right? Like people were really oblivious. They had no idea how this worked. And, you know. I think that was especially with like the art market specifically because i mean like you were saying it is such a top down slow oh my god can we talk about the art market can we just talk about the art market i have so much to say about the art market sure go for it which aspect (laughs) i know all of it all of it well no i mean because when you said the art market it's it's i don't even think it was the art market i think the art community is thinks well, we like to think of ourselves as so avant-garde and cutting edge and the reality is we're kind of 10 years behind on most things Right. We really are 10 years behind. Like, I feel like even now when we talk about diversity in the art world, we're kind of like an Obama level diversity conversation still in the art world. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, that's like 10 years ago, like that, the, the level of like the conversations are still not kind of getting at the root and the foundations of the issue. They're still kind of a little surface. And I think seeing that aspect of the online uh, ad buying, which was a, you know, not something we were going into thinking about, but we realized how behind the curve the community is. And we see that even in our institutions, even in the way social media was adopted. In museums, it was so late. You remember that, so Alexis? Late. It was, it was so, so late. late. And Can you're I like, you're like, to this, like yeah, I was listening to this webinar maybe two weeks ago. And very prominent brand talking about what they're going to be doing in the digital landscape, especially now that we're in lockdown and like re-lockdowns and whatever. And the moderator was like, oh, um, what people don't understand is that the art world has used digital for a very long time. We email JPEGs. And I was just like. That's so embarrassing. So and then, and, and you then, know that they were proud of saying that too. Yeah. Like, we email JPEGs. Mm. We email JPEGs. And then he followed that up with, and in auctions, we used the telephone, which I thought, well, that's interesting because the telephone the uses a cable, which, if I'm not mistaken, runs underwater. But <laughs> I was just like, hmm, okay. Um, we email guys I, we email I knew, jpegs i knew coming on this podcast was a great idea <laughs> yes oh my gosh we oh my, telephone guys. you know uh, erica like i have to say that everything like just on a visceral level that's exactly the kind of conversations i have all the time like it's actually kind of amazing to me the level of literacy around this issue in our community you know, and I don't, and I, I, you know, I don't know what to say, but I think that also trickles down in terms of some of the art that gets like play, right? Like some of the digital art is so simplistic that like, you know, I'm like, I kind of wonder, I was like, who is this for? This feels like something, I saw something better on YouTube the other day. Like, I don't understand like, like who is this for, but it's because they're like, and this is the sort of like the issue with the art market I have partly. It's, it's like everything is about packaging to a very small demographic of people. And then somehow we wonder why it doesn't represent us. You're like, right. no kidding. I mean, this isn't for us. Well, cause that's like what you were saying about how everything was top down. I was thinking about how, how slow the news is 
but like it's always very urgent for us who's actually involved in the day-to-day like it's right. urgent to know who's getting you know furloughed right now or what's right. happening with marciano or what's going on and like these are urgent things and we can't really wait a week for this news mm-hmm. um and then also but it's it almost seems like by design because it's like it the news doesn't get out that like you've got a board member who makes their money off of tear gas then we can't mobilize and like we can't change anything and then nothing everything just stays the same because by the time the news gets out and by the time anything happens it's just such a slow and then it's all past that and also the fact that it's like we like to think that we're all on the same team sometimes but the truth is even when you reveal truth most people don't want to hear it no they don't want to hear it they don't want to hear it. This is not a like a thing they want to hear. I mean, like about six years ago or stuff, we started talking about unpaid internships being a scourge on our community, especially the art community. People at that time were like, just resolve yourselves. This is the way it's always been. Right. You know, now, thankfully, it's not quite that way, right? Like people get shamed if they're like, like, you're not paying? What? You're a multi-million dollar organization with no budget for an intern? Like, yeah. that's kind of crazy. But but you, you know get that's credit. what are you talking about obviously uh, <laughs> you get credit if you're lucky that's it, the thing if you're lucky and then you yeah. get the experience right? Right? also what are you talking about you're learning something on the job oh like, erica i'm i'm with you i think alexis is just against exposure <laughs> be such a loud laugh on this podcast i'm so sorry guys for my cackle now i'm just thinking about an argument i got into with the gallery about unpaid internships that she'd posted last year and i just was like because i saw the job postings on nifa and they were like jobs that like i'm qualified to do like head of sales you know assisting the direct like executive assistant kind of stuff and i was just peeking through and what she wanted was like an insane amount of work and experience and composure and like, and like just being able to travel. She didn't want to pay. And like, normally I just be like, "Mm." you know, I, I'm not, when it comes to these things, my, my glass is very half empty and I just, it's hard for me to get like impassioned enough to like bug somebody about it. Cause I'm just like, Oh, it's just same old, same old. But then I looked at her gallery and she's all about, you know, social justice and pushing you know all of you know just all of the keywords and i was like how can you be and she refused to like listen to anything i said i was just like i was like i'm not mad at you i'm just saying you're trying to like reinforce these architectures that you are saying that you're you're trying to tear down yeah she's like well i i cover traveling costs and i was like but people can't afford you're also asking them to be a student they can't afford to do your internship if they can't afford to live it just was like it's just like amazing because this is somebody who's saying but like it just makes me so mad because it's just like this is if you were a regular gallery and you weren't trying to say that you're trying to change the world with your art program i wouldn't care but you're already putting yourself to a higher standard so i'm going to hold you to that totally though i will say though that i do think like our energy should be focused on like the blue chip galleries right now do you know what I mean? They have the budgets, you know, yeah, like, like most, most galleries, even the ones that are so-called quote unquote successful, or at least that's the way they're perceived, their margins are so much thinner than we right. realize, you know what I mean? And they're just not honest with us because they're not going to tell us that they're underwater or whatever, or how they, but I think like it's the big galleries that worry me even more. Like we saw recently with the PPP loans and how many of the galleries got millions of dollars. I don't understand how, 
you know, a place like David's Werner or Hauser and Worth really thinks that they needed a $2 million loan, which essentially will probably be a grant to keep people employed when they sell works in like seven digits regularly, right? And it makes you wonder, like, who are they actually serving? Who are the benefiting from this? Why, why are we subsidizing luxury art galleries? And who are they for? I mean, I, I, I have a real issue with that. I, I don't think we should be subsidizing luxury art galleries. You know, I think the smaller businesses and stuff is one thing, but Hauser & Worth doesn't need our public money. Do you know? It's like, I'm just not a fan of that. And I'll tell you my own experience with internships. When I was in grad school, I was, you know, offered to go work on, a, you know, an exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum, but they didn't want to pay me. And so they, I was supposed to move to New York in the mid-90s and, you know, do that without being paid. And I was really, I mean, talk about shock, right? There was no way I could possibly afford that. And so this is, you know, so I'm coming from an experience of like knowing that that experience told me that museums were totally inaccessible to me, right? As a job, like I, mean, I could not work at a were, were free. There all, you are. Every single, every single one of them. Um, yep. And I think I justified it with, well, I did a lot of fashion industry. I did a lot of fashion internships because I did a lot of windows. So at the time, obviously it was the norm to just work for free because you get school credit even if your school doesn't even recognize that as something that could be applied for to give you an idea six years ago or five years ago we had an intern it was her i think her 13th internship and it was the first one she ever got paid wow so think about that you know, thankfully, she comes from a family that's pretty wealthy, so she could afford it, obviously. But like, you know, in that case, it was like, I was like, is that even real? Like, who, who, like, what were you planning to do with this, you know, uh, crazy amount of internships you're accumulating? Um, so, but this is kind of normal. This is normal for our field, right? Yeah. And let's talk about the subtext of why that happens, because it's a way of, of limiting the amount of people who are not from wealthy backgrounds to be part of our field. That's just it. It's like, it's not even complicated. That's kind of the reason, right? Right. No, because if like, Susie Q can afford the internship at the, at the Blue Chip Gallery that doesn't pay her when like I can't, there's also probably a good chance that Susie Q's parents have friends who might be able to buy the art and it just keeps on going. Or probably a collector. Exactly. Collector probably kid. a collector's kid collector's kids, which happens all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, and then they, then they sort of fit into that certain milieu and then they become like the pretty young thing and that sets them up for exploitation. And, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, here's the cycle of the art community again, you know, and this is, this is kind of what we're dealing with. You know, it sucks, but we're here because we're committed to changing it. At least I am. So how are you changing it through the way the publication Sure. So like one of the things was, um, you know, at the time we started the publication, no one was paying for online art writing. We started paying. We've sort of like, we started, I think, paying 15 or $20 a post at the time. And now we're up to like, our base pay is about 150 base. And then we go from there, we negotiate from there, depending on the article and, and different things. And, you know, and we wanted to create jobs that had benefits for people. So now we're about like 12 full-time employees. And, you know, and that's bigger than I thought we'd be, honestly, at first. And now we're sort of, we're slowly trying to, you know, grow that in a, in a sustainable way. 
Um, we are also just bringing people online. We're having digital native conversations, which is super important. Um, we are, you know, we do challenge power, which means, and I think this one thing your listeners are going to have to you know, think about a little bit. Challenging power means that you probably aren't going to go to all the fancy power parties all the time. Do you know what I mean? And so you kind of have to make a commitment and understand what it means to challenge power in a community like ours. There are some advantages, one of which is the fact that because we're not dominated by corporations, which I think is probably unique for the art field, um, I don't know of any other field that isn't dominated by corporations the way we are. Like our corporations tend to be the auction houses and a couple of the publications like Artnet and Artsy. Do you know? Um, the, you know, but the most of what we do is not corporate focused, right? Or it's not corporate related. Um, the galleries are not corporations. They're not publicly traded companies yet. You know, they're not like that kind of level. But um, so it's about like challenging those and using the tools of journalism to call them out. And I'll tell you, one of the biggest issues I have is like uh, when new writers join, it's deprogramming people. That's a big role because they come with these expectations that they're creating sales copy, you know, which is what traditionally reviews are, right? Mm -hmm. And to like really beat it out of someone and be like, hey, you're not writing review copy. You're right. You know, you're writing what you find interesting in the world and talk about why. So that's an example of like what we've had to do. And I think we've actually changed the, the culture of arts journalism around it, you know, where like now you'll see people calling shows out for not having diversity. You'll see people actually write very pointed articles about an issue that they find incredibly offensive or, you know, asking for explanations for things, or in the case of the Whitney Biennial, you know, sort of saying, you know what, my artwork doesn't want to exist in this place where, you know, these people are doing these really terrible things. And I, and I reserve the right to withdraw it if I need to. Do you know, and these are the kinds of conversations we're sort of engaged with on a daily basis. And I think that has really made a big shift in the way people see our field, as well as the fact that like you can speak back to the museum and it's all right. There isn't this one way, like one way um, attitude where we people felt like it was much more pontificating before, like from sort of on high and the and the sort of like the gatekeepers are keeping the gates closed and you gotta like adhere to this like way of doing things. And we try not to do that, you know? We try to like, you can still have an opinion you can actually say it and that's fine, but we also don't pretend that's the only opinion in the world, you know, and there's clearly a diversity of opinions that appear. And some of the things we published, I don't like. It happens, like, I don't agree with that opinion. I don't like that artist. I don't think it's that worth it, you know, but you know what, if someone's passionate about it, fine with me, you know. I was that, super close to pitching to you guys because I was like, oh, I was, I used to, when, you know, we could see the outside world, like an experience at firsthand. Um, I used to go <laughs> to these shows as, as you do, as somebody who works in the field and as an artist. You know, to, Eric, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with the level of privilege you're talking. Right <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Go on. <laughs> the privilege is because I wear a mask when I'm the house. The flat, not even the house. Um, but I do this. I think a lot of people don't realize that as an artist, you don't actually know all the artists in the world. No. Even if you go and see oh the blue gosh. chips, even if you see whatever, I think that there's a really large misconception to think that 
for those who even are trained in the arts, they they see it and they I think a lot of people think that we're like magical unicorns that we just like understand it and we don't have to work for it. And so many times I I get to the door of the gallery and I just think, okay, you've made it. You've like really put in this effort. So like you're gonna go in and you're gonna try to understand this work. And that and that mental conversation, I think that maybe people also don't recognize that you're having this like mental conversation with yourself which I have all the time. Um, so I'm just like, okay. And especially the ones that you pay for, especially the ones that are expensive. So like if you're paying for like 20 pounds for a ticket, you're just like, I'm going to work really hard for this show. And so many times I just stand there and I'm like, okay, like what is happening in front of me? Cause I don't understand. And you work for it. You're like, I'm going to earn that 20 pounds back cause I've paid for this now. And I used to go to, and I used to write about this, the like internal conversation, which is like the artist self. And then just like the person who's like looking self and have that like conversation, have that review to really understand like, what am I trying to understand here? Cause I don't get it. And I don't like reading the literature that comes with it. I think I'm like really like almost brainwashed by art school saying that like, oh, I can't read things because it might influence the way I think. So therefore I have to have the purity of like experiencing this thing firsthand. So I just stand there and I think I stand there with my resting bitch face of like, what is happening right now? I am so confused. You're like, try really hard and you like move to the next one. You're like, nope, still don't get it right still, still totally. there like 15 minutes later it's like mm, i might have to do some googling at this point <laughs> but and, and it's like you have you work really hard like so when you give it up it. when do you give up erica because you know this is like this is one of the old like art critic art arguments right it's like there's this idea that when you don't understand something you work harder at understanding it but then there's a certain point where like Where's the diminishing, you know, returns on this? Like, right? you know, okay. is it so, worth? And is it worth better it? at communicating it to me for me to right? understand it better? Because at professionals, we're in the field. Exactly, we're okay, in the field. I think like, this is where I'm like, okay, I'm now going to give up on like the conceptual, philosophical like process that's in my brain, and I'm going to switch over to my maker brain and like mm -hmm. let's look at how this is hung. Because like, if I can't do this, like whatever is like visually in front of me oh, maybe you know, i can a bad show when you move into project manager page. like this is the this is the light bulbs did someone not catch that they didn't stand right exactly you mean, like other right? people it was a little that. yellow right no it's fascinating where'd you get these frames exactly. yeah. <laughs> your no, these blacks are nice this is hung really well it's like wow this is a really good canvas i wonder how much reinforcement is on this mm -hmm. you know the anthony gormley show i was the number one thing that I just couldn't get over was like, how did you ensure for the show you're hanging metal like balls yep. and like the cables? And I'm just like, my God, how much was the insurance? How much reinforcement was put in in order to not collapse this right. building? You punched a hole in the glass. But, but the Erica, do you see what they're doing to us? They're making us all into frigging connoisseurs. This is what you do in a luxury field, right? It becomes like where it becomes to like that point where the ideas then stop becoming the point and it becomes about the installation and these sort of like little nuances. I guess I'm just a little like, I get a little irritated by all that because that's like, 
that's not what I got into this field for, right? I got into it for the ideas, for work that sort of like really speaks to you. Not for this kind of like, you know, I mean, it costs are they? fifty in three months to get this thing put together. It's just like this is. It's, no, because it does. It reinforces the idea that this is a luxury, inaccessible item. Oh, like, it when is. You, when you do see the like, how like did you did you build this building around this Richard Serra? Is that what happened? Shit, this must be really important. I must really yep. like this because this is something that's so fucking monumental. That's right. And it makes the labor disappear, right? So that way it feels even more like, wow. Which, so this is what we've done. We've created a, a, a whole community of artists that literally are just emulating the 1%. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? They are just mimicking the same thing, whether it's the luxury, the idea of like all these people that work to make their work for them, all these different things. Like they're becoming mirrors of the community they're making work for. And I think that's why I'm against this whole idea of the luxury art world is because we're falling into the trap of then just creating work for a certain small demographic. And that I'm not okay with. That's not why I got into this field. Right. And then that goes back because it's in, it all it's always self-reinforcing because like what probably one of the reasons that Hauser and Swerner got PPPs or whatever the acronym is, is that because yep. they have the accountants, they can afford the accountants to do the application. Whereas Susie Q in, you know, West Adams, you know. Well, she, I found out actually partly why they didn't get them and why they couldn't do it. So this is also this is also a, a deficiency of the art community where most galleries don't pay their pay their employees as employees and staff properly. So you couldn't get a PPP loan if you're just hiring the person sitting in your gallery as a contractor. So that's what happens is so many galleries don't actually pay the taxes and hire people formally as staff. So you can't actually then write a PPP loan for like a one person venture with consultants. Yeah. So if you notice, it's all the galleries with staff, right? With staff. Right. So that's why we could get one because we actually have staff. If it was like Beacon and me in a room and we're just doing all consultants and freelancers, we wouldn't have gotten a PPP loan. Right. You know, so this is also shows you the weakness of our whole industry, right? Yeah. So that's, that's, that's the issue. That's where it's like, so these are like the structural problems in our field that I want people to look at. So that's what mm -hmm. we keep trying to shine a light on. So like, for instance, when we talk about publications, you know, I would love people to think about who funds them, right? Artnet is funded by their auction division, really. And they're like, gal so they're actually in the business of selling art. And that's what they make money off of. Artsy the same. So their editorial line is going to follow that. Art News, Art in America, now they're a corporate uh, like media conglomerate outfit. They're going to appeal to that, which means they're just going to go for the bottom line, making more money. They've been doing all these like interesting or not so interesting little like things about pens and other things to get like their SEO scores up. And, um, you know, and but this is where it's sort of like that's going to dictate the kind of coverage and what they focus on. Like when we looked at our 10 year mark, and I know we're going a little long because you guys uh, were talking about half an hour. So, but when we looked at our 10 year mark and we looked back, one of the things that really shocked us, um, and maybe this might be interesting to you guys, it's, you know, something like 1% of our support came from galleries. Wow. In 10 years. 1%. Something like maybe two, but it was like so negligible. So, 
you tell me why galleries aren't supporting a publication like Hyperallergic. So exactly. who supports you? Um, colleges, museums, nonprofits, festivals. Um, now we had to shift because of the uh, pandemic. Um, so now we're really membership-based. Our, mem our membership supports us more than ever. Within like the last three months, something like 20% of our revenue now is membership. Wow. We're able you, to like make that big shift. For the galleries, do you think, because um, I have two things, just to bring it back to that, two hypotheses. Is it either they don't think your readership is going to buy stuff or they don't want to support someone who has no qualms tearing down their radio show? So I think that's, um, I think it's more the second uh, because we do, we like, for instance, colleges say that they get a lot of applicants from us. So clearly these are people with money. That's actually yeah. one of the reasons colleges love us. We like RISD just said, you know, that they, that we sent them more online, like uh, students than they've ever had, you know, kind wow. of like, and this is not unusual. So there is a perception though, that online isn't where money is, which is, which is a false perception. Yeah. Um, you know, because when we did our membership, we saw who supports us. And a lot of those people are collectors and directors and all these other categories in our field. Um, but there is this idea that we can't be controlled. You know, so if you see in most publications that do reviews of galleries, most of them are like, you know, they're middle of the road milk toast for a reason, right? Because you can't do, you can't sell something on a negative review. Yeah. You know, it's not going to be the, what they're like game for. The other thing is, I think, I think this is the other reality is this is where the shift happened. Smaller and mid-sized galleries actually have no budgets to buy ads. It's not like, and when they do buy ads, it's usually because it's on a, in a contract with a get with an artist and artists are so behind the times. So artists are still thinking about, I want to get that art forum ad or whatever, though that's certainly changed in the last couple of years. But for years that was it, right? Like people would be like, as part of my gallery show, I put this in my contract. I want this ad. So occasionally people will put ads with us because the gallery, the artist will. The other thing is we realize that the artist will insist, but then we also realize that our advertising in the art field is pretty irrational. Like, like art in America could not justify their, like one of the groups with their former owners called in Beacon, our publisher, just to talk about ads. And uh, Vikan was like, okay, well, how do the ads work? Like, where's your case studies? Like, do these work? And they're like, we don't have any info. They weren't interested. How fucking bold! But they didn't need to because they were the, the only game in town. Right, exactly. So they don't have you know? to. You know? So they didn't have to. They didn't have to. So none of those did that. Wow. So they did not do that. So you could see oh, why colleges fled that, fled that world first and came to us because they were like, this is ridiculous. We're not getting students. Like they had something like deliverable they needed, which were yeah. applications. Most advertising, especially around exhibitions, is really just brand management in a way. Do you know? It's not like this kind of actionable. So in that way, the field was actually kind of irrational. So when we stepped into it, we realized, oh, wow, there's a lot of work that needs to be done here around this. So then the richer galleries, why are they not advertising so much? They're building their own publications. Yeah, they are. They all have their own publications now. They also because have their own platform and fairs now. Do you know? And yeah. you could think about why, because they can control the value. If you are selling something for a million dollars and there's the threat of somebody tearing it down and reducing the value, are you going to support them? Uh, Probably not. 
Probably not. Because then it's a form of validation too. Which is funny because in like not validating it, you're saying that it doesn't have worth, but then you're also afraid of that thing that's like, oh no, it's just like an online publication. But we're still not going to support it because like if something did happen to it and it affected us negatively, it's so double... That too. The other thing is, I don't think they value it. I'm going to be yeah. honest. Like, there are certain a level of there's a certain level of the art community that they're. I mean, I don't know how. I mean, I, I assume you guys have the same kind of access I do. But you know, when you meet when you meet these people and you realize they actually know nothing about art, mm -hmm. and they're just salespeople, and they're not they're not interested in this idea. They're just interested in oh, what's that idea? It's like there's no critical dialogue around the work, right? They're just interested in like, oh, this series is about that. I mean, how many times gallery, gallery um, owners lie to me about a work? Like just to, because it's probably their sales pitch to their client, right? But I know the history and I'm like, that's not what it is. Like, you know, that's not like, this is your sales pitch. I get it. But like, it doesn't sort of like pan out. Um, so there's a lot of that that goes on too. Yeah. Did I depress you both? <laughs> I was already depressed. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That was my goal. I saw it, Alexis. I was like, I'm going to make her more depressed. Bring it out. Oh. And Erica, you don't even know me yet. And now, <laughs> and now you're depressed. I have I'm done depressed. my job. So I think it's like I've heard, I, I do actively come across this. I, I actually get quite often told that I don't look like I'm an artist, which then I usually think, what does that look like? Like, should I be like the rag picker? Like, I don't understand. But then, you know, like when you say the rag picker, also nobody knows what you're talking about. And you're just like, oh, it's a very famous. You don't seem but like hey. a social climber to them. Maybe that's what they mean. Ooh. Well, I've also been, I've also been asked to leave a lot of VIP previews because I didn't look like I qualify as well. And then I'd show them my pass and they were like, oh, I'm so sorry. Anyway, that's fine. Um, my mom it's was not like, yeah, fine it's, though. It's well, not my fine. Mom, my mom yeah. says it's like, yeah, because they probably think that you stole it. And I was like, thanks mom. <laughs> this, no, they just think. literally just don't think you're going to buy anything. That's I'm really not what buy it anything. is. It's true. Right? It, it's true. A hundred percent. I'm not going to buy anything. I just conduct research and I, you know, I teach, I teach the next generation, but I, I serve no purpose whatsoever. It's okay. Well, um, no, it's so not. I don't think, excited. I don't think that's fair. It's not that you serve no purpose. It's for their purpose. worldview. You are a wild card. And they don't want the wild card in the room. Mm -mm. You no, know, yeah, it's like, it's that simplistic. Like, I think it's really simplistic. Like, they're like... Maybe I have access to people who are actually Exactly. In this selling. is what it is. It's not only are you the wild card, you're also the long game. And no one's interested in the long game. Because it's like, no one's willing to get to know you to see if you have access. Or even to know that maybe you're teaching and have access to their next big thing. Like, they don't even... It's just like, what's here, what's now? No, they don't care. You're they right. Care. They don't care. They don't care. I mean, people have like actively like like lied to my face in order for me not to go to something or, you know, it's like people are just, they just want to be able to control what it is they have. And the other thing is, let's also realize that like a lot of those people who work at galleries, their jobs are terrible. Yeah. Like they're yelled at and they're treated like crap. Yeah. And, you know, and it's like, I see them, sometimes they're terrified to talk to me. Do you know? Because they know, I know that their boss is probably like, don't talk to him or don't do, you know, you could see it. Like people get really anxious and, and they don't like, you know, it's a high stress job. Like I do not envy anyone working in a gallery. I don't know why people think it's glamorous because it's not. At it least not. It's glamorous. It's, it's, it's champagne. Yeah. Yeah. 
And yeah, I mean, that's what it is. Yeah, but it's like, you know, I, I think that's so funny. It's, it's like, a, it's a tough job, though, because you're selling, you're selling smiles, basically, you're selling yeah. how pleasant you can be. Yeah, but then it's like, I hate those, like, I almost never go to gallery dinners unless I know the artist personally anymore because i just feel like it's the worst possible environment and then people feel like they bought you dinner this is somehow a good thing and i'm like i can buy my own dinner thank you and it'll probably be better than this but like you know it's like but that happens a lot and you can see how it's sort of used to manipulate particularly young writers and like young art people as a way like as a tool to like manipulate them a little bit like being oh like favorable oh it was amazing we had a great dinner it was like dude they just paid $5,000 for this dinner, but they won't take out one ad in a publication that's been reviewing them, you know, right. for a comparable price or even less, you know? And this is sort of the reality. This is what we're seeing in the art world now that we need to change, right? You know, this is the sort of the attitude of like, you know, we're either, you know, in this together and we're trying to get to truth as a community or you're just a salesperson and it's not my job to sell you anything, sell anything for you. I'm fairly sure they're just called brokers, if I'm not mistaken. I think the slang is that a lot of dealers are just are referred to as brokers. Yep, exactly. So just I think like real that basic, yeah, I think that basically sums it up. And you know, that's why when you say that there people aren't having the critical conversations, it's just you can't because I okay. So to bring back to my point of like people say that I don't look like I'm an artist, so. I also don't talk about my practice very often because I make site-specific ephemeral installations, which is not like the easiest thing to talk about because You're then people such a are like, so, yeah, totally. <laughs> and so people are like, so what's your medium? And I'm like space, which again, is like a really difficult conversation. You know, like I definitely know I've gone to art school and I say things like this. And then I've had someone say to me at a Basel party, they're like, outer space and I was like no and like I really have to like contain my face which is hard and I just thought like how could my medium be outer space like how would I travel there to go like well, I don't Tavarish Drashen's doing it but that's like a whole different thing but it's just but it is it's so funny because those are the people who do get invited and they're not there's no infinite there's no like benefit of educating those people about art in a real way because then you can't manipulate them into buying your latest hot shit if they know when you say space immediately it's like oh yeah like let's talk about you know what's the last space that you did you know and they actually were able to get into it like intellectually or like passionately it's like there's no point when it's just like no but like let's just talk about this person's market or like yep. this is where they were reviewed and this, this is, is quantifiable where... it's mm -hmm. quantifiable yep yeah and let's not forget, like, I've been really on this, I've been on this for, for a few years now. I'm just, like, so passionate. It's like, do not forget that luxury is based on um, insecurity. So they are literally creating an environment. They are using all the markers of luxury to create insecurity in a population because that's how you get people to buy. These are all the fashion world tricks, right? Yeah, it's like the, the cold interiors of the galleries, the receptionist that won't look at you in the eye. The, like literally, we can go through all of them and they're literally all 
the monikers, like all the like different things of luxury, right? I know, and but the, I counter that, but they have really clean toilets. Their loos are exceptionally clean. <laughs> but isn't that part of luxury? That's exactly yes, it. Exactly. That's it. So like that's, that's the it. aspect I very much appreciate. It's like, Which yes, I, I, I think is great, you know, but I mean, for the, like, this is where, this is exactly like what we fall into. And then we're sort of like, then we throw a whole new group of art students and critics and stuff into this world and then don't explain that to them and then they come back and they all feel weird and there's something wrong with this field and how am I supposed to fit in and you know and you're just like no you're not supposed to fit in that's not what you're supposed to do they want you to think you're supposed to fit in because it fits their narrative it fits their mission you're we're, we're trying to mess things up you know I'm not interested in like focusing on sales you know that's not my thing I don't yeah. know. I've also been talked down to by an artist at an opening as well. He spoke. Well, oh, artists can be the worst. No offense. But like, <laughs> yeah, but they're part of the same. They're exactly like they're part. Of, they're part of the same system. And if he's, if he, I'm assuming it's a dude. Because a dude. Yeah. So if he's talking down to you, it's because like you're either making it. It's like the same like bullshit. Just like you're for, make, scaring his position of like the goals that he's trying to have, and you're shaking his worldview or like contradicting his worldview of like how he feels like he needs to perform to be successful. And if you're countering that with something else, then it's like, eh, no, don't. But like, they also think that, and don't get me wrong, these are feelings that like I have of like how I have to play in to be successful within the structures of the world we've chosen to. Because you talk about going to these VIPs in a hoodie, I would, I, I could never. Like, I literally, like, my dev comes out too much and I'm like, full on, like, you know, the earrings. Well, it's okay. Issues, like, as my mother whatever. says, Mama once tells me that they, I look like I stole the pass anyway. So I might as well just live up to it. You know, it's okay. Totally. It's, and you know, it's, but it's so, it's hard to see. Like, when I see somebody at a VIP opening and I've put in all of my work to look this way so people will like not question why I'm here. And then I see someone in a hoodie, no offense. And I'm just like, well, how are they getting away with it? Like I want to come in a hoodie. Yeah. I would like to be much more comfortable in tennis shoes. Like, yeah, should, I, I, I wear fans because I would like to walk because it's a long walk. But you know those. But that's the other thing. The artist feeds into this whole like kind of attitude that comes along with the luxury industry, which is they feel like they are the winners of this field, right? Like they have a show, they have a show at this gallery. This is, people are coming out to their opening. You, it's like the survival of the fittest thing, right? Like they won in yeah. their minds. They're like the winners, even though we know that most artists do not make a lot of money at these shows unless they sell really well. So there it's again it's a fiction that's sort of created it's kind of like you know where fashion has like you know they that the haute couture is what makes their name but nobody makes money off haute couture right they make ready it's all pret-a-porter right mm. and so it's like everyone's making and in the art world similarly i feel like there's like the things that people build their names on and then there's this whole kind of like other stuff that people actually make money off of you know, and I think that's part of it too. And I, you know, when I teach classes now with artists, I try to like make them super conscious of the money and the fact that capitalism in the way of the gallery world is not your only thing. And the reality is 1% of artists, working artists probably make their living off selling artwork. Right. 1%. Why are we talking about the 1%? Again, this is just, this is just because they validate us because they right. are they are the gatekeepers we need to us. but this is where we need to change that thinking because they're not they're not the gatekeepers they are insecure people who are have no vision 
Like they really don't. They are the insecure people falling for all these luxury tricks. Like they do at a Gucci store or a Maserati shop or whatever. They're falling for the same tricks. And then there's this sort of like imposition of somehow this logical great thing. I mean, like, no offense, but any rich collector who buys a work by cause is not somebody I'm going to follow as like some sort of trendsetter. Do you know, that's not in my worldview, even like, you know, part of it, right? This is, you know, this is an example of like, but certain, uh, a certain type of rich collector loves that crap, you know, because it doesn't make them think, it looks kind of pretty, it's part of the fashion world, all these, Immediate I mean, we could deconstruct symbol. it. Immediate, exactly. Recognizable status symbol. I mean, you know, it's not the first time that the art community does this kind of stuff. Like this is historically, this happens all the time, but like, it's not, it's not what I'm going, it's not the reason I wake up in the morning. That's for sure. But guys, Murakami is going to go bankrupt soon. And you know what? I bet you, (laughs) I bet you post Murakami, post bankruptcy Murakami is going to be amazing. I would, That's what I think. It's like, so like whose fault is that? Like, if, it's also if like, you, you know what? So like, what? I don't care. Like, so what? So what? He's going to go bankrupt. If he didn't bank money in all those years he did well, right. not my problem. No. Not my problem at all. And, you know, and this is, and I, I feel the same way. Like, Jeff Koons got like, what, $2 million for the PPP loan for his studio? That's unbelievable to me. He hasn't made any good work for like 10 years. It's, it's so incredible because it's, I, I mean, I feel bad for the people who are like working there, but it's your, because I've been, I've been on the studio side, but it's just like, it's also, but it's exactly that. Like if you're not banking the money, like correctly, like when you're, when you're enjoying the success of what, like literally we're talking about two of the top five in general years, earning artists in the world. Like yep. if you need money. Yeah, there's a that's problem. That's on you, but then like if I can't take a job that's going to pay me $9 an hour and I make a sacrifice for the art world to work for the gallery that's shilling your shit, like are you fucking kidding me? And I'm I mean, also you know supposed how, to look the yep. part? Like what the fuck? And you know how many well-known artists pay minimum wage? Oh yeah. I can't tell you how many times people have like offered me jobs that like just and I've had to turn down cuz I couldn't afford to work there. And they're yeah, like, exactly. mm, "That's on you." And I'm like, "Is it on me?" Because so you're what, paying these jobs, yeah. these jobs that I had in 2008 are getting paid the same amount of money now. When that whole art salary thing went around and I was taking a peek and I was just yeah. like, oh no, yeah. how are you supposed to live? Yep, that's right. So uh, you guys had me riled up. I know we're going long, know. but let okay. me tell you this thing you about like, particularly when it comes to like, you know, like the cost of things in our field. It's just like, I like to think now we have to start talking about us subsidizing things. Like when I tell like, so I had to explain to galleries cause we believe it or not last year, at the end of last year, we looked at our reviews. We were doing roughly around 25 to 29 reviews a week. Wow. Which is unheard of, right? It's yeah. really a crazy number without any gallery ads. So no, so essentially I turned around, I was, I was like, they were like, why'd you cut down? Cause we ended up cutting. Now we do maybe 15 reviews a week, maybe a little less, which is still quite a few and probably more than anyone else. But like I had, when people were like, why'd you cut down? I said, because I'm actually literally subsidizing your business. And you know, you have to understand we're talking about being realistic. When you're an intern for free, you're subsidizing them. Mm-hmm. 
in the same way that like if I'm writing reviews, you do they realize that like I have to pay the writer, the writer has to go with their time, we have to edit that, we have to circulate it. We have a social media team that has to get it out there. Like that's all labor. So every piece costs us hundreds of dollars. And I'm like, well, without advertising that's supporting this, I have to really think about like why we're subsidizing this. Yeah. If this is not something I want to support, I have no problem subsidizing, you know, a small nonprofit and getting someone out there to review their show or, you know, uh, reviewing a, a museum that's trying to do something different. Happy to subsidize that because that's important. Right. But I'm not going to subsidize Hauser and Worth when they haven't even like once lifted a finger to be like, OK, guys, I know you guys work really hard. We really appreciate. It. And these are people who love when we review them. Right. That's what we always hear. They're oh, like, oh, I sure. love when you review. No, I, I love, get, oh, I get those in the emails all the time. Read our latest thing in hyperallergic. Read our latest, you know, people love. But they will not advertise once. No. So you tell me, Erica Alexis, what does that mean? What does that mean for our field? Yeah. Well, because this is what we talk, like when we're talking about these, like how can you not be, like you want to be recognized for all of the stuff that you do, but you're not going to recognize anything for anyone else is going to do. Like this is where if I were a gallery, I like to think, um, and I have this like wonderful advertising budget that like, I would love to be the one who's like so fucking bold to be like, yeah, like I don't like, I support this because this is what lifts the entire conversation. And what hyperallergic is doing is like educating entire generations of people about like the art world in such an important way that it makes my audience smarter. And if they think that I did a bad job, that's fine because guess what? Maybe I fucking did. And I'm not afraid of being fucking held accountable. F-bombs. You're, you're just an F-bombs. awesome person. Most people aren't. <laughs> I think that's what it comes down to. They're just not. Like, you know, they don't, they're not even thinking that deep. It's like, I think they just, it, it's not even part of their conversation because they just see it as sort of an expense. And they're like, and actually a lot of people thought, like people really didn't spend time thinking about how we supported this. And they're usually really shocked that it's just like me and Beacon quit our yeah. day jobs. We have saved up money from 10 years of working other jobs and we started this. Which is funny though to me is like, especially when people are doing like their brand signaling, like, you know, people buy their ads in you know, all of these, like the cool magazines that have like a circulation of like five, you know, and if like, they're lucky to like get into like a gift bag at like whatever. And it's like, Oh no, look, here's my thing in flash magazine or whatever. And this makes it look cool as my brand, like how, but I feel like that doesn't translate to online as much, which is silly because it'd be like, no, but like, look how cool, like, this is where my brand aligns with like, the open and progressive voices that hyperallergic is promoting. But like, it's like they can't even see. So it's like they'll look at the newspaper, or the online or the paper advertising is like part of like their brand extension, but their online advertisement doesn't translate that way. Well, don't be surprised how much of that paper advertising is free nowadays or it's subsidized. No, like, you know, like that's the other thing yeah. It's you don't realize how much of it is really not what it seems like we're in a field of smoke and mirrors we're trying to get rid of that because we want to have an honest conversation you can't have that with smoke and mirrors yeah. you know and that's that's kind of like what we're dealing with it's it's a really it's a really kind of strange kind of reality that we're sort of like forced to you know do but that's also what makes it interesting right because at the end of the day you know adam weinberg at the whitney museum doesn't like me won't give me an interview doesn't stop me from doing my job at all. Right. 
Do you know? So in that way, it's actually kind of, you know, we're small enough and diverse enough and not as corporate focused enough that we can get a, we can still do that. Do you know? Where I don't need to have a meeting with, you know, Ann Pasternak at the Brooklyn Museum. You know, she doesn't, you know, I cover her stuff. I cover the museum, but I actually don't have to have an interpersonal relationship with her in the way that old, the old kind of thinking often does, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, but that's not going to make you lovely friends all the time. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because there's such a shift in terms of, and I think this is something in art school where they teach you. It's like you have to work really hard as to understand why you don't like something. And a difference in opinion is okay. That's why you sit through these like three hour crits and you hear, you know, you're going to, someone's going to go and make a comment and you just immediately think, oh, you're just going to shit on my whatever I've made because you don't like me. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean that what they've said doesn't come, like there's some sort of reasoning behind how they see the world. Totally. And I think that that's really interesting because for somebody who is trained to go and see like, oh, okay, I see that we have a difference in opinion, but I don't forget that you're still a human being. Oh my God. I have to share what this story, please let me share it. Yes. Okay. So, but this is also like, this also tells you though what people remember. I once wrote a review on my personal blog, not even hyperallergic, because I was a Harag Vartanian, you know, Vartanian.com. That was a site I had before we did hyperallergic. And I just used to blog from it, from my own website. And I reviewed a show here in Brooklyn, small show, two-person show. I, I put in something a little small. I think it was something effective, you know, the work didn't look good beside this other artist because the scales were off. Legit argument, scales, scale is an important issue. A few years later, that artist, um, it was well known she was dying of cancer. I ended up sitting next to her at a benefit. Would you believe the only thing she said to me was, I remember that negative line you wrote about my work seven years ago. Thankfully, I remembered the line and I explained it and we fixed it. But that is typical for my experience in the art world. Last year, I had another somebody I'd been writing actually quite lovely about for 10 years wouldn't talk to me because of a review we published. And I was like, this is not like, but this is super common. You know, people will not, like they do not understand that it's like, first of all, you review something, it's a form of respect, unless that person is just an asshole, which happens, I guess. But like that's 99% of the time, it's not that. Do you know? And like, so sit, you're sitting there and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe that you won't talk to me now because of this thing that got published as if like I've destroyed your life or something. And it was a totally legitimate critique. I didn't realize that you're Clement Greenberg. <laughs> That's what it feels like sometimes, right? <laughs> Jesus, honestly. No, but I meant, but this is kind of like, even Clement Greenberg wasn't as powerful as we attribute to him. Do you know? But it was sort of like, but this is what comes up, right? Like these are the images, this idea of like somehow, you know, you we're under siege. And this is the other thing. In our field, everyone thinks they're an outsider. Everyone. Everybody. I have never met someone that's like, yeah, I'm the consummate insider. I, this is like, you know, I've I'm never totally. Met Larry. 
But I bet you Larry doesn't think he's an outsider. I, I bet you no, Larry thinks he's an outsider. You know he doesn't. Outsider. You know he thinks he's an outsider. That's um, what I mean. Still I, I happened because I was interviewing a curator. I was interviewing a curator who had done major biennials. And I went, I, and he was like, you know, oh, as an outsider. I was like, <laughs> I was like, wait, what? You're not an outsider. He was convinced he was an outsider. And I think, and then I realized, I think we all do. Alexis, are you an outsider? Absolutely. See, Erica? I mean, how do we get inside? I, I guess that's the there thing. Is like, how do I even like qualify to go and say that I'm an, like, I don't even understand how that would work. Okay. I, I, my counter, I bet the people who think that they're insiders are the like, what, like the top 50 collectors in the world who like keep no, getting. I'll tell you why. I interviewed um, uh, Don Rubel, Rubel mm -hmm. Collection. Do you know why he told me that he, do you know what he said that the reason he um, goes to art fairs? It's the only time he can meet the art dealers because they won't come down to say hi to him when he enters their gallery. That's this, Don is, this is like the, the picture that we should have taken of yeah. like the I two know. Oh, so Don Rubel said that the that the gallery gallerists will not come down to talk to him and he goes to art fair specifically so he can talk to the gallerists. I, yeah. I hate this place. Right? Isn't oh that isn't that blow your mind? He he actually complains about the system. And I was like Don, if this system was not built for you, who is this system built for? I think we need to clarify who he is for yes. our listeners who don't sure. know who Happy he is. So Don and Amira Rubel are probably, um, they own the Rubel collection in, in Miami, and they are probably considered, you know, probably the first tier kind of like major collectors. And um, Don Rubel, by the way, his, his brother used to, he's the one who started Studio 54. Um, just in case you ever wanted to know. Um, but he, uh, so he, they've been collectors in, from the 1970s until now, and they literally have probably one of the finest contemporary art collections in the world. Incredible collection. And so the fact that they are having the same issue. Daughter Jennifer Rubel is a great artist. Is an artist too. Yep, absolutely. Um, you know, so it's like, but this is where it's like, if they are having similar issues, I don't understand who this field is made for. But at the same time, people have told me the Rubels are like priced out of the current field. That's yeah. part of it too. I'm so, it, some of the prices that are, it's, it's getting, it's getting so extreme to the point where it's just like, who's, I, I don't know, I guess, well, I, all I read in the news right now, which is, we'll maybe use this as the transition, is that right now, especially the only people who are getting richer are the already uber rich and they're just making billions of billions of billions of all of us like struggling in like COVID time. So I guess they're the ones who these prices are for. You know what? I, I'm not even sure anymore because after that conversation with Don Rubel a few years ago, I realized that I was like, this is a lot more complicated and, and kind of inhumane. Maybe that's the word. I don't know what it, the word is, but then I initially thought it was. So I'm trying not to, this is why when you said art market, I reacted that way because I try yeah. to keep that away because you're like, there's no ration. And I think the amount of mental energy we spend thinking about it, it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. It's like a beast that we're just feeding all our anxieties into and it just keeps churning out the same stuff. Okay. So I'd rather deal with the non art market 
centric work or the, the dealers and others that are working at a more human scale and not at these kind of like, you know, uh, 1% kind of brackets. So what have you read? What have you seen? What have you watched this week? The biggest thing was the one auction. One of the biggest oh, things, so which is interesting. I, st- I don't actually look at auctions anymore. Okay. I stopped. I have to say part of the reason is because I feel like it's a hamster wheel that doesn't go anywhere. And that's where I'm not that interested um, because I think it's not, it's not rational. Um, it doesn't, so I don't try to do that. I've been actually watching a lot more documentary and video recently. I feel like that's been a lot more interesting. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, even like people like, I'm glad Arthur Jaffa got his like, you know, moment where everyone was showing love is the answer. But, you know, at the same time, I wasn't a big fan of that, that people were just promoting a super famous iconic work and a famous artist. Like I would, I would like these opportunities to really be going to people who are still emerging and not about consolidating power and like canon. I'm not interested in creating a new canon, do you know? And I think this is also something that in the art field that is really contentious. I want to create an, I want to create a system where people can take the tools and use them to create their own personal canons maybe. But I don't think, I don't feel the energy to, to like create this kind of like new canon, which I think sometimes is what a lot of energy has been put towards. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I, I was happy to see it because I haven't had a chance to see it, but I do think about like, are you putting this out there because this is what you have access to and this, or this is what you know about and you don't want to put in the effort to find something new? or newer or more emerging or the risk that goes along with showing the emerging is not a risk you're willing to take right now when all eyes are on institutions doing this thing because Arthur Job is a safe bet. He is a safe bet. He's a super safe bet. And I mean, again, I was very happy to see it, but it is a safe bet. Yep. It is a safe bet. Exactly. And I think that's, it's great, but I'd like to, I'd like institutions to take a little bit more of a chance on what they do. Mm-hmm. And with the artists that they work with and be mm-hmm. all right with failing sometimes. But with these budgets, you can't fail. It's become right. like Hollywood, right? Where it's sort of like, you know, uh, Anish Kapoor is going to do another friggin' reflective whatever because that sells and people don't want to take, you know, they don't want to have their Philip Gustin moments where they're like, I'm going to paint KKK hoods, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and it's like he was famously sort of like rejected from the art world. But it does make me wonder if we created a system where people can't do that anymore, right? You know, and I don't want to live in that, in that world where people aren't um, going to take chances. What's a good documentary that you've seen lately? Oh, the one, the one I rewatched actually last night was Manufacturing Consent. The Noam Chomsky one, the one about Noam Chomsky from 1992. Um, That is such a good film and it's so ahead of its time. It came out in 92, but it just, it, it's, it's sort of like was so ahead of what it did. And then um, another documentary I rewatch a lot is Camera Person Mm -hmm. uh, by um, uh, Kristen, what's Kristen's last name? I always forget, but it's, it's sort of like her, she's a documentary filmmaker and she actually creates, uh, she's also an artist. Uh, um, 
she she created this film sort of like uh, of all her bees footage from all her documentaries she's done and she's worked on a lot of very famous um uh work so it's from 2016 and her name is kirsten johnson it's called camera person highly recommended i think it's one of the best films of the decade believe it or not um, it's incredibly important, it's powerful, it's emotional, it's super subtle, and it's super artistic. So highly, highly recommended. Wow. I will put all of that in uh, our little blurby. And Hua, will you tell our listeners how to find you on the interwebs? Well, it's hard not to find me, but um, I'm very active on Twitter. And my uh, Twitter handle is uh, Haragv, which is H-R-A-G-V, which is also my handle on Instagram, Facebook, and everywhere else. So pretty much. And you can always uh, visit my website, which is haragv.com or haragvartanyan.com. So easy to find. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. What a good chat. Well, this was a pleasure. Alexis, you know how much I've adored you from afar for so long. And, uh, and I always love your wits, your sense. And one of the things I've always connected with you has been the, with you has been the fact that I think we both share the fact that like, we like art that we can enjoy, which believe it or not, I don't think is that common. I don't think it's either. It's not common. And I'm getting a sense Erica's like that too. But, you know, it's like, but it's, it's, you know, when I went to grad school, I left grad school hating art because it sort of sucked out all the joy in many ways from, out, of, out of me. And I just never wanted to get back there. So I love seeing people who enjoy work on different levels and not as like, an, uh, as a way to sort of like control narratives or like prove their intellectual capacities or any of these types of things. So thank you. you. Absolutely use it for those tools as well, but mostly. (laughs) Yeah. But I only do that to condescend to you. That's all. (laughs) Um, Erica, I cannot wait to condescend to you. one day. (laughs) Don't condescend me. Oh, you want. Fine. I still, I still VIP passes. It's fine. Oh, oh I, am, I am so going to take that champagne glass out of your hand when I see you. What are you doing here? <laughs> if we ever see each other in a VIP room again. Ever, ever again. Well, let's admit it. It's going to be Prosecco. Oh. <laughs> Though I prefer true. Prosecco. I'm going to be honest. Oh, my God. I love you guys so much. I'm going to say. I'm gonna...